In this, probably the last episode of Season 3, or at least the last regular episode, I'll still be doing Quantum Computing Zero to Hero, more on that later, I got to talk with CEO of IQM, Jan Goetz. He is super knowledgeable about all things superconducting quantum computing, so it was great to ask him about the work IQM is doing in the field, what a squid is, and even more. Take it away, me from the past. So I have the pleasure of being joined by Jan Goetz, who is the CEO and one of the co-founders of IQM. We're going to talk about superconducting qubits, what IQM is up to, all of that good stuff. Uh, Jan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Let's do it. Awesome. Uh, before we, we dive into like what's going on now, could you give us a bit of your background, um, how you got into quantum computing, what made you interested in the first place, um, things like that? Well, I studied physics, um, and um, but back then, quantum computing was not that hot as it is uh, nowadays. Um, but I did solid-state physics, so I went then um, somehow into this field of low-temperature superconductivity, um, these kind of topics. And then um, I decided to do a PhD in superconducting microwave circuits. Um, but also during my PhD, it wasn't really the motivation was not really quantum computing, but it was more the the simulation of fundamental light matter interactions. So you can see those as like artificial atoms, and then the light um, is, is the microwave light. Um, and uh, somehow it, it just kind of stepwise I, I came closer and closer. So after my PhD, which was still very fundamental, I did a postdoc in in Finland, and this was the kind of first project really which which was motivated by quantum computing so the idea there was really to build some some components and and some systems around quantum computing so this is kind of how i stepwise um, approached the um, the field but it was not so that i i kind of sat down as a student and said hey quantum computing is so cool <laughs> it has to be this yeah that's really interesting because I've never heard of superconducting quantum circuits being used for anything other than quantum computing. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think that's a little bit how the field started. So many people consider um, an experiment by Andreas Walraff as the start. I think this was 2004, where he for the first time coupled the superconducting qubit to a single um, resonator. And um, he showed their strong interaction between the, let's say, the the qubit or the artificial atom and and the resonator um, and this was i think for the first time where on a chip these quantum optic phenomena were, were really studied um, and um, the interesting thing is that you in a sense all these these standard experiments that you know from quantum optics you can redo them um, on a chip which is maybe not so exciting but then you can reach regimes which are actually not um, reachable so easily in, in in real nature where you have single atoms and then um, a laser fade so for example in the group in munich i was working for they for the first time showed um, uh, the, or demonstrated experimentally the so-called ultra-strong coupling regime, which is when the coupling strength between the, the atom and the light field is on the same order of magnitude as actually the transition frequency. So like such kind of things um, you could do. So during my PhD, for example, I studied selection rules in superconducting circuits. You, you have them as well and this kind of parity con conservation. So all of these concepts that you know from the quantum optics, they apply very well also to the superconducting uh, circuits. Very interesting. So um, is there, could you give us any sort of intuition as, as to why that is? Like my mind initially goes to the fact that, um, for instance, like we use um, 
electron microscopes when we can't get optical microscopes small enough. Mm-hmm. Is it is there anything like that um, going on, or yeah, why why is that? I mean, if you if you look at the theory side and in quantum optics, what you do is you say my atom is a two-level system, so you ignore all the higher-level systems, but basically what you have is a system with discrete energy levels, and then you shine coherent light on it. It's optical light. And the superconducting circuits is nothing else as a system which has discrete energy levels. So actually, a qubit, the way we call it when we talk about quantum computing, this is only the approximation that we use only the two lowest states um, of the superconducting circuit. But actually, also a superconducting circuit has all the higher um, excitation levels, uh, very similar to an uh, atom. So this means that from a physics point of view, if you describe it, the Hamiltonian is identical. So you have the the identical Jens Cummings Hamiltonian or Rabi Hamiltonian. Um, and the fact is that our microwave light or the laser light, uh, uh, the, the laser light, um, in our case is microwave um, excitation, but it's just still a coherent light field. Um, and the atom is just a circuit which has discrete energy levels. Uh, so the abstraction is in a sense the same. The Hamiltonians, yeah. they really look identical. Very interesting. Okay. Um, and so going back to sort of your transition into uh, quantum computing, you did this this postdoc, and then did you do anything before um, going and co- co-founding IQM, um, or did you go straight to IQM? Yeah, so um, originally my goal was to make a scientific career, uh, mm-hmm. so do one postdoc here, maybe another postdoc there, and then hope to get some kind of a professorship. <laughs> um, so and typically this, the length of such a postdoc is two years, so when the, these two years were over, um, I sat down with my professor and we discussed a little bit of what, what can I do, how, how could my career path look like, um, and then he said, hey, I'm... Um, somehow in the background already been brewing the story of spinning out a company. Um, so it was his original idea, but he wanted to stay in, in science. So he's still running the um, the research group at the university. So he was looking uh, for people to, to run the company. And I was actually not the first one. So we are four founders in IQM. Um, so he already at this time identified our current CTO, Kuan, um, to um, be the CTO. He was back at the day, he was at uh, Microsoft in in Sydney. Um, And then Yuha, our current uh, chief operating officer, he was an old friend of him. Also, he's also a a physicist, um, but he was working in in the software industry. And he was still looking for someone to take the CEO role. And then he was asking whether I would be interested in doing this. And then I I was thinking like, okay, this is a once in a lifetime chance. So (laughs) uh, maybe maybe the the professor career can wait (laughs) until after this one. yeah, then, then we just decided to do it and, and tried it out. And actually, in the beginning, um, I was still employed at the university when, when we did all these investor pitches. Um, I think this is a little bit the nice thing. At the university, you have more freedom to do yeah. um, such things in, in parallel. Um, and also because it's in the university's interest, because they like to have these kind of spin outs. Um, so this was uh, for us, of course, uh, very helpful that I could um, do the, the fundraising while, while I was still employed. And um, in this sense, no one of us had to take a real risk and, and quit um, his job before we actually got the money to start the company. Yeah, that is definitely a, a nice benefit. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, IQM, like the, the name, I can't find that it's an acronym for anything. So uh, let me ask the dumb question. Is IQM short for anything? Um, it might be. 
but there might only be one person in the world who knows, uh, which is not me. So Miko, who I mentioned, the professor, um, he came up with a name and we actually have a challenge in the company. So whoever finds out the right kind of uh, acronym and, and tells him he gets a, or she gets a prize. Um, but so far this, this hasn't happened. So <laughs> maybe, maybe people can now spam Miko with emails and suggestions for the name. That, that is, that is funny. Um, I was not expecting to ask the CEO of the company and get a, I don't know what the, the name stands for. <laughs> yeah. I, I was once at an, uh, at an event at a, uh, exhibition, international exhibition where we already had the company and there was a, a guy asking me the same question and he was, he couldn't believe it. He was in the end almost screaming at me saying, Hey, you're the CEO. It cannot be that you cannot know this, but I mean, <laughs> this is how it is. So in this end, it's just three letters and, and we are all happy with it. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. And so why, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what IQM is, is doing nowadays? Yeah, so IQM is a quantum computing company and we build quantum computers. So we do the hardware based on superconducting um, circuits. Um, so the, the process um, in, in fabricating is, is very similar to semiconductor processes, but then we don't use the semiconducting materials, but, um, but superconductors on top of silicon or, or sapphire wafers. Um, so these are the, the core of our tech are really the processors. And then, of course, we do the system integration, which means we put them into the cryogenic environment. We connect all the, um, the electronics, but um, the components, uh, most of them we buy actually off the shelf component and put it all together. It's a little bit like in the, let's say, if you are a car manufacturer, usually you do the engine yourself um, and, mm. and then a lot of the, the components around it, you just put it all together and, and sell the car as a system. Um, so this is, um, in a sense, what we do. And then also... On the, on the software side, if you compare a quantum computer to a classical computer, it's very similar. You have some kind of a software stack uh, with, with several abstraction layers. And we only built the software upwards to a level where we can then interface with some of the standard programming interfaces um, that are um, out there. Um, so so this is what, what we do, what we develop. Um, and um, our way of, of looking at quantum computing um, is very much um, that the quantum computers, they belong into supercomputing centers because it's a, the field uh, is, is high performance computing. Usually the, the um, problems that you want to solve with the systems are, are coming from this side. So we see them uh, very similar to uh, what you have, for example, in AI. Um, there, if you have a, a complicated algorithm, usually you have an accelerator, which consists of a, a GPU cluster, graphical processing units. So this is a little bit how we see the quantum computers as a um, QPU, like a quantum processing unit, which acts as an accelerator for the classical HPC um, environment. So this is uh, something that we do is we bring the quantum computers into the supercomputing centers. Um, and since we are a startup, um, we need some kind of commercial traction. And, and this is why our business model is actually to sell the system to, to supercomputing centers. And we have done this now once um, in Finland where we sold one system and uh, we have a few others um, in the pipeline. So this is kind of, we, we built the technology, but then of course, as a startup, we also um, commercialize it as much as we can. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so you, you mentioned building up the software until it can interface with some of the um, common yeah. um, libraries. What are some of those libraries that you, you can interface with? 
Well, I mean, the big ones that everyone knows, of course, is the Kiskit and, and Cirque. Uh, we are also then one of our partners um, here in Europe is Atos, uh, which is a, a French uh, computing provider. And they have something called QLM, uh, which is a, a similar thing. Um, so these are the three um, that currently work with us. Actually, then what we also do is we collaborate with some of the software or algorithm startups to use their um, things as well. Um, so there we are really open to kind of any kind of collaboration that, that helps us to connect also then to end customers, for example. Okay, awesome. And so I, I wanted to ask, like, what is IQM doing different, right? To set you apart, obviously you have competition in the superconducting qubit um, field. So what, what makes IQM machines special? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Uh, you could uh, become a venture capital investor. <laughs> it's, like a, it's a standard question. Right? <laughs> no, but I think it's a fair question as well, right? Because just by copying others, uh, you're not going to not gonna make it. So you have to have yeah. some unique ideas. And I mean, we are a very innovative uh, company. So we uh, apply quite a few um, patent applications, starting, of course, on the, on the hardware side, the way we build the processor. So we are actually... Um, yeah, developing um, our own qubit types that go beyond the standard transmon um, qubit. Um, we do quite a lot of on-chip uh, things that are not so common. Um, so, for example, we have things like on-chip refrigerators um, that you can use to tune the, the um, environment of the qubits. So there's a lot of on-chip um, development going on. But then actually what, what we have figured out is that if you look at the, let's say, the, the quantum computing hype, which is triggered by the huge um, promises on the application side, usually what you realize is that, okay, the, the applications are there and the algorithms and they require a certain hardware, but the hardware is far from kind of reaching the, the specification. So there's a huge yeah. gap, this kind of hardware software gap. Um, so uh, we have put a lot of kind of, um, thinking into how can we close this gap as fast as possible. And usually, if you look at the market, you either find the hardware companies which try to close the gap from the hardware side, or you have the algorithm companies which try to close the gap from the algorithm side, but they don't really know where they should meet. So it's kind of the, the direction is not necessarily aligned. So this is why what we do in IQM is we have developed something that we now call, it's also known from classical computing uh, as, as co-design, which means you kind of develop from both sides um, to meet in the middle at the same time. And in this way, uh, we can really um, implement certain algorithms very natively in our processors and reduce the hardware requirement. So in a nutshell, what this means is that we can run a similar application with much fewer qubits than you would have on a general purpose machine, for example. Interesting. And so because you're using fewer qubits, I would guess that the algorithms, I, I guess my question is, how much do the algorithms change in order to do this co-design? Are you taking existing things like Shores or Grovers and modifying it a little bit to work with your, your hardware? Or are you making completely new algorithms? Um, I'm not saying, I would not say we make uh, completely new algorithms. So you, you always have to start from something. Um, usually, and unless you come up with really something from scratch with a great idea, but we are not at this stage yet. Um, so we take existing concepts and and um, ideas, uh, but uh, more these concepts come still more from the NISC um, side. So it doesn't have to be necessarily um, some of the algorithms that that you mentioned. Um, and then we think about how can we 
certain blocks of these algorithms, how can we implement them more natively? Um, so to get a better uh, mapping between the algorithm um, and, um, and the implementation. Um, so just to give you an idea of, of what I mean, um, if you had an algorithm where you have one qubit that you need um, to be um, connected to many others, so one single connected to many others, um, actually the best way to arrange this is to have this one as a central one and the other ones in a star-like configuration around it, because mm -hmm. at least for the superconducting uh, where you don't have end-to-end -end connectivity, then with a, a single gate you can reach all the other ones. Um, and this means that you really have to change the design on the chip, so the layout, um, how they are connected. So these are the kind of, of things how we are playing around um, with the algorithms and the hardware at the same time. Okay, very interesting. Is, so maybe this is somewhat similar. I know that um, like Google's processors, if I remember correctly, um, rather than uh, CNOT being a native gate, they have uh, square root swap gates mm. um, as their native entangling gate. So is is that something uh, similar that to what you're doing at IQM? Yeah, this might be. So what I just said is just an example on how you could use the layout, but you can also use the gate set um, for um, implementing certain algorithms more natively. Um, so we are also playing around with this. So in, in addition to what you just said, you can also think about, um, and this is something that we call analog blocks, for example, um, instead of only using single and two qubit gates, uh, maybe in some algorithm you find um, um, certain um, parts where, let's say, a three-qubit interaction or a whatever multi-qubit interaction actually is very efficient, and then you put this block in there. Um, and so this is um, how you can really work on either on the hardware side, on the design side, or then also on the algorithm side as well. Okay, very interesting. And um, uh, going back to something that you said earlier, you talked about um, putting refrigerators on the on the chips. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, so this is a, an interesting on-chip device, um, which um, was initially um, developed um, to realize very fast and unconditional qubit resets. So in, in each um, algorithm, in the beginning, you want to initialize all your qubits, usually to the ground state, or at mm -hmm. least to a well-defined state. Most of the time, people use the ground state. Um, Actually, if you use error correction, um, in each of these error correction cycles, you have to reset the qubits um, in the beginning. Um, so this is why a fast and accurate uh, reset operation actually is very, very um, important. And for this purpose, we have developed an on-chip component where just with a... Um, uh, a short um, DC voltage pulse, you reset, reset the, the qubits um, unconditionally. And actually, and this is important and brings us to the beginning of the talk, you also reset all the higher um, energy states. Um, so um, sometimes there is an error uh, when the qubit is, instead of going from zero to one, it jumps all the way to the second excited state, mm. um, this call of leakage errors. And um, these errors actually are, are pretty bad because they cannot um, be corrected by the traditional error correction codes anymore. Um, so for this purpose, we, uh, we developed an, an on-chip tool, which we call QCR, quantum circuit refrigerator, which is an, a small little piece. And you apply a short voltage pulse and it resets the qubits um, to the ground state. And physically what it does is it kind of, it cools down the, the temperature. So each qubit or two level system, you can attribute an effective temperature to it. And the, uh, the excited state probability 
can also be related then of course to this and this is where the name refrigerator comes from um, so what we do there is basically we change the the environment of the qubits and this for example can be used also in in um, yeah, let's say quantum simulations. Um, if you don't really think about digital quantum computing, but more think about the, the quantum simulation where you want to simulate, for example, phase transitions in open quantum systems, um, there you can really nicely play around uh, with them. That's really interesting. Okay, so I've got uh, two questions then. The first one is how often do these, these types of errors where it jumps all the way to two rather than one happen? Uh, and then the second one is, are you able to select which qubits to reset? Or when you apply that DC pulse, does it uh, reset them all? Yeah, so the, the first question about how often it happens, um, this depends on um, at least two parameters. One is something that we call unharmonicity. So this is the frequency uh, difference between the 0-1 transition and the 1-2 transition. Okay. If they would be equal, right, you would always uh, excite both, but yeah. you call it a qubit because these are not equal. Um, so you want to have this unharmonicity as large as possible. Uh, but actually, transmon qubits, which are the most widely used ones, they suffer from a relatively small anharmonicity. Okay. Um, so there, uh, this is um, what you and and how do you excite the um, into the second um, level? Usually, um, this happens um, if there is a lot of energy in your pulse. So let's assume you want to do a pi pulse, which flips from zero to one. You want to make this pulse, for example, as short as possible to avoid decoherence, which means you need to have a lot of power in the pulse, mm. and this drives these transitions. So it's a trade-off between how long you want to make your pulse and maybe have some decoherence effects and, and how many of these leakage errors um, do you have. So you can, in a sense, control this uh, the leakage error rate by adjusting the, the pulse length. Um, and the second question is that, yes, so we, we have to place one of these devices next to each of the qubits that we want to reset. And then you have two options. Either you, you connect all of these devices to the same voltage line, then you would reset all of them all, all at the same time. But if you want to have individual control, um, of course, you need then to have individual control lines as well. Okay, very interesting. Um, and then I've got, so a little bit of a transition. I've got uh, just a general question. Um, about quantum quantum computing is that when I'm talking about superconducting devices, a phrase that I've seen come up a lot that I don't fully understand is uh, SQUID, uh, S-Q-U-I-D. Um, it's an acronym. What, what is that and where where is it used in quantum computing? Yeah, it's an, do I get it together? Acronym for super superconducting quantum interference device. Um, so you have the word interference there, um, and um, this comes from the fact that the squid um, is a um, is a loop, a superconducting loop. Um, and let's say um, there are two junk two Josephson junctions, these nonlinear elements in the loop. So this means that if you start, let's say, at the bottom of the loop and the junctions are on the right and on the left-hand side of the loop, then you have two, you can either choose the, the right path or the left path to go to the um, to the top. And this is kind of where the interference comes from. You have the interference effects between those two paths. Um, and um, what what is affecting the, the interference, uh, like in a typical interferometer, is the phase difference. And the phase difference um, in a squid is induced by magnetic flux. So it's a very sensitive, uh, flux-sensitive device on chip. So it's basically the flux that penetrates this loop, which affects the interference uh, pattern. So you can use it 
to measure actually magnetic flux in a very, very sensitive way, which is, for example, being used sometimes when you measure the brain activity. You, these people mm. have a, some kind of a helmet on, which is, of course, super cool. And uh, there are a lot of squids to measure the, the magnetic flux generated by the brain. Um, but of course, in a quantum computer, we don't use them to measure magnetic flux. Um, but what we do is, uh, the other way around, we use magnetic flux to control them. Um, so you can also um, describe them as a tunable inductor, um, where the inductance of the device um, can be controlled by the magnetic flux through the device. Hmm. Um, and um, you can see a qubit in a... In a um, approximation as an LC circuit, LC um, harmonic oscillator, but it's unharmonic. It's a little bit unharmonic because of the squid. The squid makes it unharmonic. Um, and the tunable inductance um, leads to the fact that you can tune then the frequency because in a um, in an harmonic oscillator, the frequency is one over square root LC. So if you can tune the L, you can tune the frequency. And um, this is how we, for example, can uh, then implement um, two qubit gates by bringing two qubits in, in resonance with each other. And then when they're in resonance, uh, in resonance, they exchange interactions. And then we tune one qubit again away from the other one. And for example, this is how you can uh, do a, um, um, an operation where the excitation, the, the one state goes from one qubit to the other. Or So this is how you um, on-chip then control the qubits. Very interesting. Okay, so let's see if I can I can recap that. Um, you have uh, magnetic flux influences the inductance, which influences the frequency, which then allows you to perform gate operations. Is that a good that's, summary? Yeah, this is exactly the, the way we do. Or this is one way to, you can also implement gates in, in other ways, so microwave-induced gates or whatever, but this, this is one way of how you can um, induce gate operations between qubits. Yes. Okay, so then the and then is the input that um, controls the magnetic flux? Is that just current from the uh, whatever processor is controlling it? Exactly. So you have uh, similar to what I mentioned with the voltage control line for the reset um, for the squid, you need an on-chip flux line, how we often call it. So this is a, a current bias. Um, so usually then the flux line is shorted to ground somewhere um, on the chip, and the current the current pulses through this flux line induce the magnetic field um, into the squid loop. Okay, awesome. Uh, so this has been super informative. I've got a couple questions that we answer uh, every episode uh, with. So the first one is, what do you see currently as the biggest problem in quantum computing? Um, well, uh, there are, it depends on whether you mean a technical problem <laughs> or a, a, another problem. I think one of the problems that we have is that at the moment we see a lot of hype, which I think is quite dangerous for the field in general, um, because it's about expectation management. And I think at least uh, for us and most of the other um, uh, founders who come from academia, we really want to see the field um, to be successful. And I think the risk that we have here now is that if we overhype it and we cannot really stick to the promises that we make, then there might be this kind of uh, explosion and, and um, the whole field suffered from it. So I think this is something we have to be careful in the way we talk about it and, and, and what we promise. But this is more like a, let's say, um, yeah, structural Thing, um, of the how how the the funding nowadays is organized, um, but then of course also there are quite a lot of challenges, um, which might lead to the fact that we don't reach our promises. 
And I think um, there are challenges at, at all levels of the of the quantum computer stack, um, and also for all the technology platforms that are out there to to implement them. Um, and, um, and, and I don't think that they are impossible, all of them to to overcome. But I still think we need a lot of lot of research and R and D to go um, into this. And um, I think this kind of collaboration between academia and maybe startups and industry, this is really something that we should foster more and more in order to overcome all of these challenges, because it will be an interplay of fundamental science, of applied science, and then maybe applications, industrial use cases. Um, in the end yeah yeah definitely and so then sort of the the flip side of that question um you've talked about promises what do you see as the the biggest promise or potential um, gain that we can get from quantum computing in the next five to ten years well i see quantum computing as enabling technology um so quantum computing as such is not an application but it's just an enabling factor for certain applications and um, I think, and, and especially for IQM, we are really motivated by those use cases um, that help to, to make the world a better place somehow. Um, so in the, in the early days, a lot of the funding, I think, that went into the field was coming because um, of the, the Shor algorithm, uh, which can be used for the decryption, uh, which is more like using the technology as a threat. Um, and I think this is not um, how we should use technology and how we should communicate technology. Um, so we are really motivated by those use cases um, that help us to somehow help people or, or yeah, get a better life. And, and this might be so this is why I really like those ones that go into the simulation of, of um, property, chemi chemical properties, for example, because you can use them to have better materials, maybe even better uh, medicine, pharmaceuticals, uh, all of these. But of course, which which of those will fly in the end? You would need a crystal ball. So <laughs> this is really hard to tell. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, where can people find out more about you, IQM, and what you're working on? Well, of course, we have a web page, um, IQM, if you Google it, IQM and, and, and Quantum, um, and um, you find some, some contact details there. Um, we um, actually, for those who develop, uh, we have an, um, an open source software uh, for people who design superconducting uh, quantum circuits, uh, which, is, which is quite nice, and, and we will uh, work um, on those more. Um, and um, yeah, um, always uh, feel free to just reach out through, through any of the, the contacts um, that you see there. And then we are try, trying to be also to be quite active um, on all the levels. So, uh, for example, the different conferences uh, like APS March meeting or in, in, in other countries as well. Um, but then also the more, let's say, business driven conferences uh, which are out there. We if we can, we try to be quite active there. So always uh, feel free to just either come to our booth. I hope this is now possible again soon uh, after <laughs> after traveling uh, will will become um, or, uh, possible or also, yeah, just in a virtual space, <laughs> reach out to us. Awesome. Well, Jan, thank you so much. I've learned uh, just an incredible amount from you. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. And thanks for the great questions. It was good to discuss some physics as well. Uh, usually nowadays, I don't do this so often anymore. All right, I got no questions or corrections from any of the previous episodes, which I really doubt. I don't think that I was as clear as I could be, and I definitely didn't, I wasn't perfect. I definitely made some mistakes, 
Um, I don't know what they were, so that's why I'm asking you. If you have any questions or corrections from previous episodes, please reach out to me via email, minds, or anchor voice message. I will get back to you as soon as I can and put your question and my response in a future version of this section on uh, episode. Okay, like I said, here's your quantum computing zero to hero update. So I've already started going through it. I started this the beginning of the year. So if you're interested in going through this with me, I've got a couple episodes up already, and I've got all the resources that you could possibly want. Um, and I've been putting updates about what I'm doing on Minds, so make sure you follow me over there. Um, as you can tell, yeah, I got more votes to put this on the podcast. Although if people reach out to me saying, please, Ethan, stop putting this on the podcast, I will stop. Um, but at this point, yeah, more votes for putting it on the podcast than not. So that's the plan. And a lot of, I'm not going to record everything because a lot of it, at least right now, is just me watching videos, which is not interesting um, for anyone. That would just be an hour of silence. So I'm not recording those, but I am still putting all the links that I'm using up on Minds every day so that people can follow along with me if you're interested. If you would like to support me so I can make more and better episodes, so I can make things like Quantum Computing Zero to Hero, uh, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes. Or you can send me some crypto. I've got addresses in the show notes for that. A big thank you to the person who recently started supporting me on Anchor. Um, you know who you are. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone else, for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.